0: So again, just a reminder, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. This is such an important passage of Scripture, I want to take three weeks to go through it. So we'll have another week in 1 Corinthians 15 next week, and then we'll finish up 1 Corinthians on December the 13th. So just a reminder again, because we're going to have about 70, maybe 80 extra people at church on Sunday because of Brett's family that are coming in for the ordination and because of the Acquire the Fire staff, any and all of you who signed up to bring something on Sunday, please make sure you bring it because we're going to need you know, all, all that food on Sunday to feed several hundred people. And don't forget, we're, we're having homemade tamales. I mean the authentic ones made by a real Mexican family. I have a little connection with that family so and then uh there's going to be green and red chili and homemade tortillas and it oh it's just going to be it's going to be great great weekend so last week Paul talked about what would life be like if Christ never rose from the dead? If there was no resurrection and he went down through and and to be very honest, just it was pretty depressing if that would have been the case. But as Paul comes to verse 20, he reiterates the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And so tonight what we want to do is we want to look at then, what does the resurrection of Christ really mean to me? How does it affect my life? How does it change my life? How does it change my perspective on life? This is one of those great instances in the Word of God where doctrine... And sometimes you're like, oh, doctrine, that's that's cold. That's just, ugh, doctrine. When you use that word, it's like, that's boring. But, but see, the resurrection of Christ is probably the central doctrine of the New Testament, and yet it's very practical. Because Paul's going to point out that that this central doctrine of our faith, the resurrection of Christ, should impact the way we live every day that we live as a Christian. It should just change everything. And so Paul's going to begin to tell us all the things that really come out of the fact, the reality of Christ's resurrection. In verse 20, notice again, he talks about the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He uses the term first fruits because it it implies, obviously, that this is just the first portion of a greater harvest. And so the first thing that we see here is the fact that Christ's resurrection reminds us one day of our resurrection, That we're going to be resurrected and given a glorified body because of Christ's resurrection. I can say amen to that. Every year that goes by that I get older, I'm like, I'm looking forward to that glorified body. We are the first fruits, Paul said. Christ is the first fruits we are to follow. It's also very interesting that, let's remember something, that the reason why Christ is the first fruits of resurrection is because Other people were raised from the dead. Jesus himself even raised people from the dead. Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead, but they were reanimated. In other words, they were going to have to die again. Jesus is the first one who was literally resurrected who would never experience death again. So there's a difference between reanimation and resurrection. Anyone that Jesus Christ raised from the dead had to die again. But Jesus never died again. He ascended to the Father in heaven. It's also very interesting, I think, of why Paul used the term first fruits, is because it would certainly resonate with anybody uh, from a Jewish background. Because the Jews remembered that if if Passover took place on on, uh, Friday, if that's when the lamb was slaughtered, the, the second Friday of the month, and we believe i believe at least that that's when jesus was slaughtered he was crucified on friday then you have saturday the sabbath that on sunday the day that jesus rose from the dead the jews would present an offering of first fruits that's very interesting and then 50 days after passover they would present another offering of first fruits at what's called pentecost which, very interestingly, obviously, we know the story in Acts. They were the first, in a sense, Christians to follow in faith, and the church got started and all that. It's just very interesting how that first fruits even tied in with the Jewish festivals and feasts and offerings and all of that. That's why it's good to know the Old Testament as well. That's why next year in January, we're going to be diving into the Old Testament on Tuesday nights. So, first fruits. We know our future resurrection is tied to Christ being the first fruits of being resurrected. Then he goes on to say the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, in the Bible, sleep is a metaphor for death. And here we are reminded that also Christ's resurrection means you and I don't have to fear death because death is not the end. We are not annihilated. And also the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep like many believe. When the Bible uses the metaphor for for sleep, for death, the word simply means quiet and resting, which is what a dead body looks like when they're dead. They're just quiet. They're resting. Yet we know that the Bible clearly teaches in other places that... That they are that when we die or any Christian dies in Christ, we're not we're not in some suspended animation somewhere. The Bible clearly says, Second Corinthians five eight, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter sixteen, when he was talking about death, said that as soon as as these two men that he was using in the story uh, in Luke 16 died, immediately they were conscious in eternity. One in heaven, one in hell. So there was no, you know, suspension or anything. There was consciousness in eternity the second that they died. So when the Bible talks about Christ being the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, it also is an encouragement and a reminder to us that this life is not all there is and that we have something wonderful to look forward to. We don't need to fear death like anyone else because we know exactly what's going to happen to us when we die. Just like the thief, today we will be with Christ in paradise the moment that we close our eyes in death. Then he goes on to say, verse 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man, the man Christ Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, by the way, the name Adam means the red earth, because we know that back in Genesis, God took the dust of the ground and formed Adam. The name Adam means the red earth. All die in Adam. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Now here, Paul's not just telling us about, well, yeah, I know I'm going to be made alive. I'm going to be resurrected. But these terms, these words in the Greek language, made alive, mean more than just being resurrected one day. It means to be given a new and greater power. So here again, we have a very practical out. Uh, out effect, if you will, of Christ's resurrection, that not only will one day we be resurrected and given a new body, not only do we not have to fear death because we know what's going to happen to us when we die, we have that assurance, but now Paul goes on to say we've been made alive in Christ, and it's more than just looking forward to future resurrection, it is knowing that even today I have access to a new and greater power in my life, the resurrection power of Christ, because He rose from the dead. It goes back to sort of what I said Sunday about that power to live life every day. And it also, I, I couldn't help but think of that new and greater power and think of that great passage that I'll read for you again. We've even taught on it here on Tuesday night. Uh, several months ago, but it's a great passage. We all love to hear these words. So I'm going to go back and read them again. Let me remind you of this. It's Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to begin in verse 28. Isaiah writes, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not get tired or weary. There is no limit to his wisdom. He gives strength to those who are tired. To the ones who lack power, he gives renewed energy. Even youths get tired and weary. Even strong young men clumsily stumble. But those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. They rise up as if they had eagle's wings. They run without growing weary. They walk without getting tired. A new and greater power we have because Christ rose from The dead. We are made alive. We've been transferred, Paul says. In Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have access to resurrection power every day. When Christians say, you know, I want to see a miracle, we must remember that in a sense we are a walking miracle every day. Every day that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in a way, at a level that you and I could never attain as a human being on our own, That's miracle power from God. And we need to recognize that as such. We should not, you know, in a sense, look down on just living everyday life with Christ and knowing that we are living at a higher level by His power, not by our own. It's supernatural. It's a miracle of God because we've been made alive. Paul goes on then to say in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, but each in his own order or place. In other words, Paul's saying back to the resurrection, that, that it's like the resurrection doesn't happen at the same time. Every person who believes in Christ will not be resurrected at the same time. There's an order. It's almost like Paul saying that the resurrection's like this parade. And we all don't pass the box where the judges sit, if you will, all at the same time. There's a different place in the parade of resurrection for each of us. And so Paul goes on to say, Christ is the first fruits. Then when Christ comes, those who belong to Him. One of the things Paul's saying there to remind us of is, Oh, because Christ rose from the dead, guess what else that means? He's coming back. When Christ comes. If Christ never rose from the dead, then He couldn't come back. But because He rose from the dead, His promise is true. He will come. The word come means arrive. It's talking about His visible presence. He will appear. You see. So that's why Jesus said to his followers in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christ is coming. And can I just say, I hope he comes soon. I'm ready. What we have to look forward to as believers is way better than what's taking place here on the earth. Verse 24. Then comes the end. It doesn't mean the end, because there will never be the end. There is no end. We live for eternity. The word here means a termination of this season. This season. This particular season of human history will end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And there now we have another aspect of a positive about Christ's resurrection. And that is we also can look forward not only to his coming, but to being part of a future kingdom of which he will rule over on this earth. We dealt with that through our study of Revelation. The millennial kingdom of Christ. Unlike any other time on earth. Then... When he has brought to the end all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign. That word reign is really interesting. In the Greek language, it literally means king of kings. It's like Paul saying, he's the king of kings. And so because he's the king of kings, he's going to put all other kings, if you will, and all those who hate him, who are hostile to him, who oppose him in any way, he's going to put all his enemies under his feet. The phrase under his feet in the Greek language literally means to be vanquished. In other words, something else you and I, in a sense, look forward to is the vanquishing of all of Christ's enemies. One day, Christ will make everything right, which also then in turn means you and I will be vindicated one day because of Christ's resurrection. That even though people today mock us and scorn us and make fun of us because of our commitment to Christ, one day that's all going to be reversed. One day, those without Christ are going to see the true glory, if you will, of the saints of God. And we will be vindicated for our faith in Christ because all of Christ's enemies one day are going to be vanquished again all this because christ rose from the dead this is in a sense paul is is taking from christ's resurrection all the way through the book of revelation through the rapture through the millennial kingdom even into the the creation of a new heaven and new earth and he's saying here the rest of, of human history as we know it all these things are dominoes that will fall because christ rose from the dead so he goes on to say then in verse 26 the last enemy to be eliminated is death. And there again, another great product, if you will, of Christ's resurrection is one day there will be no more death, period. Death will not even be anymore. And by the way, the word death in the original language literally means separation. That's literally what it means. Because when a person dies, it's not like they cease to exist. It simply means that their spirit, the immaterial part of them, is separated from the material part of them. That's why they, the Bible, that's why God also uses death when he talks about the second death, if you will, of people who don't believe in Christ, who don't trust in Christ, and who go out into a Christless eternity. Because that means they're going to be separated from God for all of eternity. That's even worse than physical death. Because again, when you and I as Christians physically die, we're never separated from Christ when we die. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 23 could say, I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but he, my shepherd, is with me all the way. When a Christian goes through death, Christ is right there with them. The sad truth and the sobering truth of those without Christ is when they die, they are separated from God, not just for a year, not just for a thousand years, they're separated from God for all of eternity. And here's the thing, not because God wants to be separated from them. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It is God's will that all come to repentance and come to Christ. So it's not God's will that they go out And are separated from Him. That's the way they wanted it. They did not want God in their life. So God said, fine. There you go. Eternity without me. You don't want me in your life. You don't want me to be Lord of your life. You don't want any part of me. There you go. Eternity without me. A miserable, miserable eternity. Then He says in verse 27. Once again, He has put everything in subjection, under his feet. The word subjection here is the Greek word hupotasso. It's a military word. It literally means to arrange under the command of a leader. And so Paul is also reminding the Corinthians and us that because Christ rose from the dead, it is a reminder to us that everything in the universe is arranged under him, the leader of the universe. That there is nothing in the universe, no one in the universe, who is over. Him, which should be an encouragement to us because even as we live life, we must remind ourselves we've been made alive in Christ. We have resurrection power that can pulsate through our being. We have a new and greater power available to us. But we are also reminded here in this passage of scripture that there is nothing we will ever encounter, nothing we will ever come in contact with, no one who is greater than Christ because everything has been arranged in this universe Therefore, if we have Christ, we don't need to fear or be concerned about anything else. That's why Paul could say to the Romans, if Christ be for us, what? Who can be against us? That's simply what he's reminding us of here. Now he goes on to say, when it says everything has been put in subjection, it clearly does not include the one who put everything. In other words, he's saying God the Father is not subjected here in any way. And when all things are subjected, verse 28, to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him. Paul's simply making a, a, just a, a point here that even throughout eternity, in the Godhead, there's order and there's roles. And that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always keep those roles. In other words, in a sense, what Paul's saying is, Jesus is not just the Son of God for now. Jesus will be the Son of God assuming that role throughout eternity. And again, let's remember again, subjection, submission is such a dirty word today. You know, and yet the Bible clearly teaches that Christ embraces subjecting to God the Father and keeping that order. Again, Bible clearly says not that Jesus Christ in any way is not equal with God the Father. He absolutely is. Jesus even said, I and the Father are one in the Gospel of John. That's why they took up stones to stone him and kill him because the Jews knew that was blasphemy. So Jesus and God the Father are equal. There's no difference in value we there. It's simply that Jesus places himself there in order. There's a role that each of us play, and that's why God even shows us that, pictures that for us in the Trinity itself. But Paul says all of this happens. All of this. I think he's, he's saying from the resurrection of Christ throughout all the dominoes that are going to fall, the reason why they all fall this way, the end of verse 28, don't miss it, is so that God may be all in all. Literally, in the Greek, it it means the whole. And, And what it means in the Greek is that one day God will be everything that matters. Today... There's a lot that matters to us that's really not important or of eternal value. And even as Christians, God is moving the universe and moving humanity and moving mankind to a day when God will be the center, when God will assume his rightful place in the universe. He will be everything that matters. Everything that matters will somehow be connected to Him and from Him and for Him and as it says in other places of Scripture. What a day that's going to be. And then verse 29, probably one of the most misapplied, misunderstood, misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. This verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15, about the Corinthians being baptized for the dead. When you interpret Scripture, one main principle is, whatever interpretation you land on, it cannot contradict what Scripture has already taught. Scripture teaches all over the place that, first of all, people don't get a second chance after they die. The Scriptures are clear about that. The Scriptures also teach that there's no other place in Scripture where it even comes close to saying somehow that there's a practice where Christians can be baptized by proxy for somebody who's already died. It's clear. So when you come to a verse like this, you know that if the Scriptures teach these other things, then you cannot land there. Now, all of you who've heard me teach you know that I don't like to spend any time usually attacking, if you will, someone else. Because I believe that if I just teach the Scriptures, you all get it, obviously, and you can make those applications yourself. But this is so huge, and especially because we live in an area that is so influenced by uh, Mormons and Mormon theology, I felt like I had to bring this up today, because if you don't know this, the Mormon church literally has thousands upon thousands of people in their church hierarchy who do nothing more than basically rename and find out people who have died and then they are baptized into the Mormon church without even them or their family or friends knowing about it as Mormons. And that's why they have these huge vaults and and birth records and death records and all of that. Because they have taken, as a church, this one phrase out of 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and they have basically built an empire on it. In fact, there are five, I believe I'm correct with this, there are actually five, I don't want to say churches, but but, uh, locations where they secretly baptize dead people who have died into the Mormon church and keep all of these records around the country. So, this is why It's so important to get doctrine right, because when you don't, it can really mess you up, you see. What does this phrase mean? Well, first of all, in the context of how does it relate to me, I think simply what Paul is saying here, and it is an unfortunate English translation, I will grant you that. I wish they would have translated it differently. But I believe what Paul is simply saying here is, why would Christians have been willing to publicly identify themselves with Christ, which is what baptism is all about. Why would they confess Christ publicly? Why would they put themselves out there if Christ didn't raise from the dead? When it says baptized for the dead, it's in reference to the context of the resurrection of the dead. You don't get that in the English translation, but in the original, you certainly get that in the context. So I think what Paul is saying here is he's simply saying, why did why do people today, meaning in the time that this book was written, why did they why were they influenced by even Christians who may have already died and knew that they were in a better place in heaven and that their lives and the way they died and the way they faced death so inspired them that they stepped up to be baptized and to follow Christ and be publicly identified with him. If Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's what I think the verse means. It does not mean that we ever baptize someone by proxy for people who have died. Let's move on to something less complicated. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Verse 30. Paul also says, And doesn't the reality of Christ's resurrection, shouldn't it change my perspective on life, the way I look at life, the way I live for Christ, the way I'm willing to even suffer for Christ? Because notice Paul says in verse 30, why too are we in danger every hour? And so, again, context is very important. I think because of even verse 30, 31, and 32, that's why I interpreted verse 29 the way I did, because Paul is simply continuing, why would we ever put ourselves out there In any way, if Christ had never risen from the dead, but because Christ did rise from the dead, I am willing to be put in jeopardy, to be put in peril, which is what the word danger means in verse 30. Every hour, Paul said. In fact, he says every day I'm in danger of death. I love this phrase because in the original language, it literally means a seed planted into the ground. Paul said, every day I get up, I look at my life as a seed planted into the ground. And isn't that what Jesus said to his followers? He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it will produce a great harvest. And Paul looked at his life that way. Why? Because of the resurrection of the dead. Then Paul goes on to say, this is as sure as my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. If from a human point of view, again, from a human perspective only, to see only as man sees, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what did that benefit me? Why would I have done that? Why would I have put myself out there and exposed myself to possible death if I didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. If I didn't believe that there was a whole eternity waiting on me and the only thing that really mattered was living for Christ no matter what that meant for me. Paul said, why would I do it? So Paul here is giving the Corinthians the fact that the resurrection of the dead and the reality of it should change the way we live our lives. It should change the way we look at life. That we should never look at life from strictly a human point of view. But from God's perspective, from God's point of view, which obviously includes the resurrection then he also goes on to say if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die in other words paul saying if the dead were not raised then we probably should live purely for the pleasure of the moment but again paul saying because christ rose from the dead then it shouldn't be the pleasure of the moment we should always keep eternity in view When we live our lives, it should just change the way we live every day. So that's one of the, again, byproducts of the resurrection. The second one is this. Paul also said the reality of the resurrection, and this is something we might not just normally think of, but Paul said the reality of the resurrection should change our relationships. It should change who we hang around with. That's why Paul goes on to say, by the way, He says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul said, if you really believe in the resurrection, you're going to be very careful about who you associate with, who you allow to be close to you, who is your companions and friends in life. The words bad company in the original language, mean wrong-thinking friends. Paul's basically saying you don't want to stay too close to people who don't think rightly. Now in this context, obviously he's talking about the people at Corinth who are denying the resurrection. Paul said to the Corinthians, in a sense, if you keep hanging around people who deny the resurrection... They're going to rub off on you because they're just going to start living for the pleasure of the moment and not living for anything beyond this life. And it's going to affect you. So don't let these wrong-thinking friends affect the way you live. Begin to look for people who think rightly. This is a principle found throughout the Bible. The book of Proverbs says, If you want to be wise, walk with the wise. For a companion of fools will suffer harm. So really it says a lot about us of who we want to be close to us, if you will. We're not going to get into it this Sunday, but but one of the things after the passage we look at Sunday that Paul's basically saying to the Philippians is find people who share the same spiritual passion for Christ you do and hang around them. That's always a good thing to do. Find people, find Christians who have the same spiritual passion for Christ you do. And make them your friends. Because wrong-thinking friends are going to corrupt you and drag you down. Never the other way around. And isn't it interesting, too, that he doesn't say wrong-behaving friends? He says wrong-thinking friends is what the word bad company means. Because guess what? Paul understands, the Bible understands, God understands that my actions are born out of the way I think. That sin starts in the mind. That the going down the wrong path starts with the way I think. That's why I love that book, Telling Yourself the Truth. Just talking to Mark and Judith about that tonight. That's a great book. If you've never read the book, Telling Yourself the Truth, I'd encourage you to get a copy of it. It goes back to that whole importance of thinking properly. That's where it all starts with us. Not only that, but finally tonight, we're going to close with this, verse 34. The resurrection of Christ should also remind us of the impact that we have on other people's lives. Going back to even the context of, you know, bad company corrupting good morals. So Paul, notice in verse 34, says, sober up Now again these words obviously can mean the obvious like you've had too much to drink but very rarely in the Bible is that what those words mean <laughs> The word sober up here means clear your head from the mental fog you are in That's what the words sober up means Have you ever been in a place in your life even as a Christian where you felt like you were walking around in a mental fog now, I'm not talking about in the morning before you have your coffee. We're we're all there. I, I get that. I'm, But I'm just talking about there, there's some times in life where we just seem to not be able to think clearly, to be clear-headed, to, to be able to just sit down and calmly and rationally think that we're, we've got like a mental fog in our head. Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, get rid of the mental fog. It's ruining your life. And... It's ruining other people's lives too, which is why he goes on to say, stop sinning. Again, I think in the context, the specific sin he's talking about here is the denial of the resurrection of some people in Corinth. You are sinning, Paul says, when you deny the resurrection of Christ because it's affecting your life. And guess what? It's affecting other people's lives too. Because notice what he goes on to say. For some have no knowledge of God. Paul said, do you realize as Corinthians, if you're denying the resurrection and you're living like there's no resurrection, do you realize how that's negatively impacting others around you who only have a, a cursory, a very general understanding of God? They don't have enough of an understanding of God not to let your Bad thinking not affect them, Paul said. They're not mature enough in the faith. They're not grounded in the word to know any different. And so you may be leading them down the wrong road. And Paul said, stop it. Because the reality of the resurrection reminds us that our lives do heavily influence other people. And when it comes to eternal matters and of eternal importance, like the resurrection of the dead and and eternity with Christ and all of that, we got to be right. If we're not right about anything else in our lives as Christians, we've got to be right about that. And that's why Paul then ends this great passage with, I say this to your shame. By the way, the word shame just means a lack of respect and reverence for God. Paul's saying, by acting this way, you are showing a lack of respect and reverence for God, ultimately. All because Christ really did rise from the dead. So tomorrow, we won't go to today. Today's almost over. We're all, But tomorrow, when we wake up tomorrow, well, you know what? Maybe we won't wake up tomorrow. But here's the thing. If you're a believer and you don't wake up or I don't wake up, we're going to be with Jesus because of the resurrection. And maybe we won't make it through the evening because maybe Christ will come in the rapture and we'll be with Him and meet Him in the air. But if we do wake up, and tomorrow is like any other day on earth, it should still be different for us. Because we call ourselves Christians. And because we say we believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if we believe in the resurrection of Christ, Paul says, it should make a difference every day. And the way I approach life, the way I live life, the energy I bring to the life, what I do with my life, it should all be different because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad Jesus rose from the dead? Amen. It's so neat how Christmas and Easter sort of tie together because obviously Christ had to come in order to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. But it just shows how the resurrection of Christ is truly the the center of our faith. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what we talked about last week is all true. But if Christ did rise from the dead, and you believe it, then everything we talked about tonight is true as well. Let's close in prayer. God, go with us this week. And help us, Lord, as Christ followers, not just to, not just to learn doctrine and be reminded of doctrine like the resurrection of Christ to the point where it just becomes cold facts that just sit in our heads. Help it to be, Lord, realities that completely change and transform our lives. That helps us to think differently. Helps us to live differently. Helps us to look at ourselves differently. Helps us to look at others differently. It it just changes everything. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being who you are. And Lord, for reminding us that as the eternal God of the universe, death could not hold you. There is nothing that can hold you. There is nothing greater than you. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, even though we may not see every king and ruler and power and nation under your feet now, By faith, we know that to be true. You are in control. And one day, God, we will see that every enemy, every opponent of yours will literally be placed under your feet and vanquished. And yet, Lord, for us, what a glorious future remains for us. God, may we always keep the glory of what lies ahead for us right at the very center and forefront of our thinking. Help us to not get so caught up in what takes place on this earth and what is of earth to overcome the fact that we are children of the King who will one day rule and reign with you. Thank you, God, for this encouragement tonight. God, give us a great week, and God, just prepare us for for this weekend, for for Saturday and for Sunday, for just all the wonderful things that our church is going to experience this weekend, culminating in in Sunday service and with our potluck and our fellowship. God, I'm just so excited about what you're doing and just another opportunity for us to get together and And be with each other. So God, just work in us powerfully so that Sunday may just be an overflow of what you're going to do throughout the rest of this week in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. See you on Sunday.